Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to The Times. To find out more, head to thetimes.co.uk. Well, after an unscheduled break uh, last week, we're back this week with another Times Opinion podcast. And in a little while, I'll be talking to John O'Sullivan in Sydney. John has been watching the drama surrounding the Australian Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, who has just survived a vote of his party caucus. And uh, John will be talking about what that means, not just for Tony Abbott, but for Conservative parties around the world and for the austerity issue more generally. But we're going to begin with a special focus on the deterioration situation in Ukraine. We're going to have a special focus on Russia's place in the world and what our response, both as the West and Britain in particular, should be to it. And for that, I am joined by Anne Applebaum of the Legatum Institute, regular Washington Post columnist, and also my two Times colleagues, diplomatic editor Roger Boys and foreign editor Roland Watson. So let me start with uh, you, Anne Applebaum. You said to me recently that compared to the situation that we're facing in the Middle East, in Iraq and Syria with ISIS, you actually think what's going on in Ukraine and Russia at the moment should be much more of worry to us. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think that the, you know, the Ukraine is really the symptom of a larger problem. And the larger problem is Russia's grand strategy, if I, if I can put it that way. Um, Russia's aim is to uh, delegitimize and destroy most of the institutions of what we think of as Europe today, ranging from the EU and NATO to our tradition of not moving borders that we've we've put in place uh, after the uh, war, Second World War, and again after the Cold War. The attempt to undermine Ukraine is a first step, but it's part of a larger plan. Um, Putin has been using his money uh, over the last ten years to. Uh, fund anti-establishment and anti-European parties in Europe on the far right and the far left. Uh, he uses his money to bribe and buy political allies all across Europe. 
And lately, he's made it clear that he has territorial intentions on NATO states, um, certainly including the Baltic states, um, even kidnapping an Estonian officer, uh, capturing a Lithuanian ship. Um, this is part of a plan. He sees Europe, you know, part of what he wants to do in order to stay in power, he needs to show that Europe doesn't work, that it can't be successful. He needs to prove to the Russians that it's a failure. And you, you, Ukraine is a part of that process, which has been continuing for some time. And do we, Roland Watson, think he is still in control of this situation? He obviously annexed Crimea very deliberately. Have the events, the insurgency in eastern Ukraine, said, is this still something that if the Kremlin wanted to, they could stop happening? Is Anne right that this is a plan, or is it a plan that has taken its own sort of momentum? Well, that's, that's the million-dollar question before uh, this meeting in Minsk, where Merkel and Hollande will try and, uh, try and get Putin to agree some sort of peace terms. Uh, it's, 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 it's unknowable from here the extent to which, if Putin were to say, OK, we'll have a ceasefire, we'll have a buffer zone, we'll close the border, whether those people on the ground are at his beck and call sufficiently. And there's plenty of evidence to suggest that he has let off the leash in East Ukraine, something which he cannot control. Our correspondent Ben Hoyle uh, was overlooking the Balseva yesterday from rebel-held territory in, uh, in some woods where 30 smart-looking tanks uh, with crews with non-Ukrainian features had turned up overnight. And their local commander was quite clear. So any peace plan agreed by anyone um, means absolutely nothing to us. We're going to carry but on fighting. But those tanks would have come from Russia. Almost, I was going to so. say, I mean, uh, if, if, if Putin cuts off the weapons and he cuts off the logistics, then they, they lose. I mean, this is, this is Putin's plan to create a so-called frozen conflict inside Ukraine, which will be a source of instability for Ukraine indefinitely. So even the so-called peace plan ends in Putin's favor. I mean, he, I think you're right in that he... You know, the, I think the original plan was different. He intended to take all of eastern Ukraine, and he imagined that it would be easy, as Crimea was, and then it turned out not to be. Um, but sort of plan B is create a frozen conflict, create a zone of instability, use that to destabilize Ukraine, continue other kinds of destabilization. I mean, there's been a series of bombs have gone off in Odessa and Kharkiv and all across the country. They have economic tools, they have agents, they have all kinds of things they can use. And so this is, this is now the plan, make Ukraine a failed state. And Roger Boys, um, a few years ago, he invaded Georgia, the West, did very little really in response to that. Are we seeing the consequences of our lack of clarity of our position in what uh, Russia is now doing in eastern Ukraine? Well, I'd say rather it's a, a passivity that, that became absolutely obvious in a completely different theatre um, when we voted against using hard power in Syria. I think that sent, nowadays when you send that kind of message, it has an immediate global impact now. It's not just something that's noted with interest by Bashar al-Assad, but it's something that, that absolutely changes the climate. And, and one of the problems we've faced, it's not just that we're totally ineffective, which we are, it's uh, that there's no deterrence. We can't build a deterrence structure up against this kind of warfare. Or, but we can find things to do. Uh, but ultimately, Putin is not going to be deterred by anything we do. And so all that he's doing is, in fact, buying time. 
so that he can realise yet more of his ambitions. And one of the problems of sitting here is, of course, I agree with Anna on almost everything, totally, but... Um, I've, p- I've picked the wrong guess. Actually. Yeah, it's the wrong... Uh, yeah, yeah, well, one of, the, one of the other has got to go, I think. Um, but there is a confusion, it seems to me, between what Putin is up to and between... There is, as Anne said, this uh, element of trying to destabilise, being a permanent destabilising factor through making a frozen conflict in Ukraine. And the object of that is quite clearly that Ukraine doesn't join NATO, that Ukraine doesn't drift off westwards, or even come to some kind of arrangement with the European, or a deeper arrangement with the European Union. That's quite clear. And, and actually, we can relate to that in some way. There is actually some kind of conversation maybe to be had. Uh, but, uh, but there is another agenda going on which goes well beyond Ukraine. And we're only just beginning to, in the West anyway, beginning to click what this well, is all I, about. I want, I want to come on to that in a, in, in a minute. But, and I want to come also on to your case for arming Ukraine, at least defensively. But the economic sanctions that the West have used so far combined with the collapse in the oil price, have created enormous economic difficulties inside Russia. Is that at all affecting public opinion towards Putin? Uh, Is the Russian middle class beginning to think this is a price not worth paying? Are there any signs of that? Well, again, we'll be in agreement on this, but it's as long as you're in control of the state media, you can pin the blame on on uh, the West for any particular malaise. There are limits. But people to that. have access to the internet in yes, Russia still. Yes, they course, can still see course. alternative that, forms. It's of not that you know Russia is without criticism of of Putin. Of course mm-hmm. not. It's a completely, it's very interestingly variegated uh, set of opinions. It's just that they can't do very much about it. So. I think there is still a level of economic sanctions that can come, uh, which is swift, you know, the bank-to-bank transfers. And I think when that's introduced, that will have an impact throughout the banking sector, but also on people themselves, uh, ordinary people, and on any kind of business. It will be, in effect, a stage, a, a very big stage towards the economic isolation of Russia, which has a very... Has developed a quite I'm going to put economy. the question you haven't quite answered of mine oh. to Anne. So, is is there any sign, Anne, in, of public opinion shifting in uh, Russia? I, I, I think the truth is that we don't know. Um, yeah. I, I don't believe the opinion polls for a variety of reasons. Uh, you know, if you're a taxi driver in Krasnoyarsk and somebody calls you up and says, hello, this is the polling center in Moscow, do you like the president? <laughs> what are you going to say? Yeah. Yeah, so, that's that's one problem. The other problem is that people have, you know, it's a complicated, you know, people might say, oh, I like Putin, but I hate the way my city is run. You know, Mm -hmm. there's a very complicated to pick apart um, right now what it is um, that people feel in Russia. But the more important answer to your question is that even if the middle class, such as it is, didn't like him, so what? I mean, you're making a mistake that a lot of people in democratic societies make by imagining that popular opinion can change the behavior of the government. I mean, yep. there, there is no mechanism through which popular opinion influences the government. There is no mechanism to change power. There is no way to force him out um, through through the mechanism of popular opinion. Um, the only you know the only way anybody can imagine him leaving right now um, is through some kind of internal coup. You know, palace coup. The people around him throw him out. And I, you know, I, I have, uh, that's not impossible, but I wouldn't have any knowledge of whether that's going to happen or not. And, and you've written, and um, I think it, in The Spectator, actually, if you look at some of the other elements in Putin, the alternative to him are even worse. Some people are 
pushing Putin to be even more draconian towards Ukraine and some people even well, calling her no some sort of not pushing against Putin yes. I mean, no. and, and also so, it's yeah. you know I sure. once wrote actually a few years ago I wrote an article in which I went back and looked at all the, the obituaries of Stalin and the obituaries you know what was written when Khrushchev resigned almost every single time a Russian leader set, resigns including Stalin um, people and I believe it was the Times that wrote you know oh now the hardliners waiting in the wings will take over um, we do have this penchant for believing whoever's next <laughs> Russia will be worse, so uh, be we careful. Have, we that. have some good, good historical precedent, though, for thinking that. <laughs> on uh, Roland. Uh, well, just on sanctions, I, I think there, there, there is an argument that in the short and even the medium term, the, the more effective the sanctions are, the more dangerous it is for East Ukraine. His, his, his popularity at the moment is, uh, to a large extent, based on his overseas adventurism in Ukraine. And if, if the economy really starts hurting at home, which it clearly is, uh, he may feel an imperative that he's created for himself to be bolder overseas and to be more aggressive overseas. So there, there, is, a, there is a danger, I think, in, in, in the economic sanctions that they may, may rebound, rebound abroad even more. There's also a structural problem in that at some stage, sanctions against Russia will impact on Ukraine and will pick up the bill. Yeah? Mm. So Russia is still Ukraine's main trading partner and it's suffering. It's suffering for all sorts of different reasons, including incompetence. But, but uh, Is there much that, trade that is happening a, that's between Ukraine and Russia now? It must almost be completely frozen. Um, I well, thought. I mean, it, I think most of the trade came through manufacturing industry in the East, yeah. um, but uh, there is... There is stuff still going on. There, there is a kind of, and there are conversations still going on between Russia and mm. Ukraine, even though they're at war. Roland, do you worry that further economic sanctions or further economic hardship might only encourage Putin to be more aggressive? Is that your fear if we did start sending Ukraine kind of defensive weapons to ensure that it could uh, defend itself against this uprising? Possibly, although I think the, 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 the point about weapons is that this is a debate operating on a completely different timeline from events on the ground. Sending lethal defensive weapons um, to Kiev is, is a work of not just week but months and this morning we wake up to see that Dubalseva, this, this key uh, strategic rail and road hub which is at the end of a sliver of territory currently held by Ukrainian forces uh, is surrounded. Probably tomorrow when this peace summit takes place in, Mil in Minsk, Dubalseva may easily be falling. It'll make the East more contiguous and more coherent for the separatists. Um, so the, at the moment it's a debate uh, it's a debate that, that is immaterial in a way to what's happening on the ground. Anne Applebaum. Uh, you know, I, I, I very much agree. I wrote this yesterday. I mean, I think the the arm Ukraine debate is a kind of red herring. I mean, of course we could arm Ukraine, um, but A, it would take months to make any difference. And B, so what? So we give them some radars and then what? And then what's plan B? And then Putin escalates and then what do we do? Um, you know, it seems to me a kind of, it's a tactic rather than a strategy. A so, strategy so Merkel rather than America is the person we should be listening to in this debate? Well, first of all, I'm not sure there's that as much difference between Merkel and America that, as, as you would imagine. I mean, the, the loudest noise in America is coming from congressmen who don't have that much influence over U.S. foreign policy. Mm -hmm. um, and I haven't heard the White House talk very enthusiastically yeah. about arming Ukraine yet, and I would be amazed, uh, particularly if this White House did. I mean, 
there is a you know there is a strategy and the strategy might have a military component it might involve you know rearming it might involve we put a berlin wall in the form of a demilitarized zone around donetsk we accept that that's lost we then build up the ukrainian army the ukrainian internal security because that's also a complete disaster we take over the ukrainian economy in the way, you know we do for ukraine what we were trying to do for greece before they elected a, a you know dif- difficult government or west germany after or, the war or or west germany after the war you know mm-hmm. okay it's west germany this is the new this is yeah. the new line and and we fight them and and i would add, you know i would add, i would think there're many more you know the the sanctions we've done are just skimming the surface i mean i would also argue that sanctions are there's an argument that says getting Russian money out of our political system and out of our banking system is good for us. Mm. You know, it. You know, if we enforce our own corruption laws and we, uh, you know, you saw it in the the, the some of the um, you know the HSBC story about the Swiss banks, Swiss banking that's come out in the last few days. You know, if we enforce our own laws and we push Russian money so that it isn't infecting our politics, you know, there's an argument that says that's good for us. And then there and there are all kinds of levels. First of all, why haven't we denied visas not to a few dozen people, but 10,000 people, the mm. entire Russian elite, all of their children, all of their wives? Mm. You know, that That's something that would affect people. Well, you made this a case in the Financial Times recently, and for Times subscribers who go to the times.co.uk slash central, I'll put a link to that article. Roger, you were worried there was going to be no difference of opinion yeah, between you and I, but yeah, yeah, you, you yeah. do support... Um, arming Ukraine before yeah, not because I think it's going to create any any miracle uh, uh, miracles on the battlefield um, and I accept that there's going to be a delay but you have to you know we have very limited ways of flipping Putin and one way to flip him is to say well you know you claim that this was all about the fears of Russian encirclement Ukraine joining NATO well guess what we're going to enter the the biggest military power in the uh, in, in the world is going to enter some kind of non-NATO military partnership with the Ukrainian army and train it up. So there. So think again. Yeah. So I think that's why they say it has to be on the table. It, you, you have to. I'm not suggesting it happens tomorrow. In fact, probably tomorrow will be the worst day in history to arm the Ukrainians. But but as a as a as an option that has to be developed. Yeah, I think it's really good. Okay. Just before we end, I want to talk about an editorial, Roland Watson, that appeared in Monday's. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. ...edition of the Times, which is really saying, where is the United Kingdom in all of this? We had the French president, the German chancellor, uh, meeting the Russian president, and Britain was very heavily criticised by some observers, and it sort of seemed to capture a sense that we weren't just disengaged on this occasion, but Britain was disengaging generally. I think if you try and... um pinpoint or try and articulate what British foreign policy is at the moment, it's extremely hard to do. There, there is clearly a, a, uh, a very large European aspect to foreign policy. And you mean as in Eurosceptic? Well, as in, as in the renegotiation with, yeah. with Brussels and what shape that takes and what we get from it and uh, what that looks like over the next 12, 18 months. And that's sucking up all the energy of the Foreign Secretary uh, and Number 10. Uh, and that, is the, that seems to be the one and only foreign policy that we have at the moment. It, it is domestically understandable, given that we're about to go into an election, it's a flagship policy, uh, and the Prime Minister has recently appointed as Foreign Secretary Philip Hammond, who appears there to do a job for the Eurosceptic side of the of the Tory party, both in arguing their case and in calming them. Um, but it does mean that on the world stage, we are curiously absent. I'd be amazed if if you went around Capitol Hill and asked people who the British Foreign Secretary was, whether they'd be able to name him. And, and that's that's quite a state of affairs. The British people um, and Applebaum probably think this is a very good thing. They're exhausted from their involvement, the British government's involvement, the British Army's involvement in Afghanistan and in Iraq. The intervention in Libya did not go very well. Um, the idea of Britain taking a rest probably thinks very popular. The trouble is that Britain is also losing influence over things that it cares about. You know, I mean, just to take for an example, the, this, this Europe, the reform of Europe issue. You know, Britain would have had all kinds of allies on on some of this, certainly in Germany, but in Poland, um, in other parts of Central Europe. You know, Cameron's way of beginning this conversation was very strange. Instead of look, walking around Europe, going to meet people, saying, here's what I want to do, let's build a coalition for reform, let's talk about what we should change. Instead of doing that, he started by, you know, insulting East European immigrants and thereby losing you know, four or five countries who might have supported him. Hmm. Um, and to have, to, to it's, it's just inept diplomacy. And, and, and incidentally, in doing so, alienated the Germans, who just think of him as a kind of troublemaker. I mean, if you want to change an institution that you're in, you change it through coalition building, through alliances, through creating a, a mood and a, and a desire for reform. You don't do it by going around insulting people and irritating them. And I'm afraid that's what the British did, and that's why they seem so left out. Mm. I mean, they're just not part of the mainstream conversation. They're focused on issues that only they care about, and they've neglected to... They, they haven't made a wider European and, uh, argument. And at the Munich Security Conference this last weekend. There, it, was, it was as if they didn't exist. It was, it was French, you know, French, German, American, Polish, Baltic. Those were, the, those were the main voices. And the British were absent. Would this change? I, I might, I might say the British came underprepared, too. They thought, that, they thought a week ahead that the issue would be Iran. 
and uh, everyone was briefed up to talk to Jarif and uh, they thought this was going to be the big British push mm. for uh, for a deal and it, it, it of course Ukraine completely overtook the uh, mm. the agenda. Just just final word to you, Roger. Lots of criticism of where the British foreign policy is now. Would that change much if we have a change of government in May? Yeah, it would be disastrous, frankly. I mean, the problem is that uh, we're shrinking. Yeah, um, uh, the army is shrinking, and influence is shinking in in general. There are even foreign office cuts. Can you believe it? Uh, so forty percent um, cuts. Yeah, yeah, quite serious ones. And uh, uh, I mean, the only thing that uh, if you're suggesting what a Labour government would do, I would say. Perhaps they would change the structure of aid. Perhaps they would change the, the structure of soft power. But I, I must say we do have to accept that we can't, you know, we're just simply not part of the equation, not because of a passivity, although that's there too, but simply we're not part of it. I mean, Iraq, Syria has to be solved by America, Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran. We've got nothing to say in it. And frankly, nor do the Germans. You know, there are some things but, that we're not you, really in there. But if you were there. doing it together with the Germans and together with the French, and I'm not even talking about the EU, I'm just talking mm. about alliances within the EU, you'd have a really strong voice and you'd be able to say quite a lot. But, mm. but, but the British seem now not capable of collaborating with anybody. On that note, we must end it. Thank you very much, Anne. Thank you, Roland. Thank you, Roger. And now we travel all the way to Sydney, where we speak to John O'Sullivan, who's been watching the drama unfolding in Australia and the attempted putsch to uh, Tony Abbott, the Prime Minister there. John, Tony Abbott has survived this leadership spill. Do you think he will survive for long? Yes, he can. There is certainly a feeling that it was, as he himself said, a near-death experience. In a sense, said, well, I intend to work more closely as a, uh, in a more collegial way with my colleagues. He will have uh, have to do that anyway, since they rallied around insufficiently for him to win. He no longer dominates them quite as he did. But at the same time, the party has made it clear too, I think, that it doesn't want to have a continual series of these spills, and unless the opinion polls continue to deteriorate or indeed lay where, stay where they are uh, and unless there's um, a deterioration in the economy which is the underlying problem I think he probably will survive for at least the next six months or a year and that brings him close to the election and at that point I think yes parties in Australia have changed leaders of the last minute but nobody wants to make a practice of it and it didn't help the Labour Party. Mm. They are seeming to make a practice of it at the moment. We've had Kevin Rudd and Julia Gillard, two Labour Prime Ministers, dethroned in recent years and that came perilously close to getting rid of Tony Abbott and, of course, may still do that. Is there something wrong in the Australian political system that's that's causing this? In both parties, the problem is that the uh, rules for, getting, for having a leadership election and changing the leader are, are too easy. In, if you look at British politics, the Conservative Party demands, I think, that 46 members of Parliament inform the chairman of the 22 committees that yes. they have lost confidence in the Prime Minister. And, um, it's quite a, a high hurdle high to hurdle. cross, yeah. Yeah. But the point is that in Australia, there's no hurdle at all, really. And if a challenger thinks that um, he can do it, he can get a few of his friends to propose this. And, and that's what happened on this occasion. A lot of people... Um, uh, were doing this because they thought Malcolm Turnbull, A, wanted it, and B, secondly, that he could possibly win. But one of the factors in this is that Tony Abbott has shown that he kept his nerve. 
He fought back well and bravely, but he didn't uh, go to extremes. There was no abuse. Both sides actually behaved perfectly sensibly, given that they were engaged in a not very sensible exercise. And I think um, Abbott has actually emerged a somewhat stronger figure here, even though in public opinion terms he's never been really popular. And what do you think is the main reason why he's um, hit this sort of unpopularity, John? Because um, Matthew Paris, one of our my colleagues here at The Times, wrote in a piece on Saturday, and I should say to all Times subscribers listening, if they go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central, they can access a link to that piece. But um, Matthew's argument was essentially that um, if British Conservatives thought that climate change, scepticism or a tough approach to immigration was what was missing from the British Conservative Party, they should look to Tony Abbott and they'll find that actually it isn't salvation, it isn't political salvation. Well, I'm an admirer of Matthew's writing, but I think on this occasion he really didn't know a great deal about what's happening in Australian politics, and he just applied as a, in a rough-and-ready way a sort of a suspicion that if you're a right-winger you'll probably not do very well. Now, in the case of Tony Abbott, he isn't that right-wing demon king that, that um, Matthew was sketching out take one of the most controversial aspects of, the, of his policy, which has caused him a lot of trouble with his party. Well, that is his proposal for an extended and very generous paid parental leave uh, after the child is born. That, in a sense, is a, a, a policy that comes from the left rather yep. than the right, because Abbott is, in fact, comes from a kind of tradition of social concern in Catholic um, politics here, rather than from the traditionally Protestant uh, Liberal Party. Take, for example, free speech issues, where the right here is, as the right is in Europe and England, concerned about the intrusions on free speech and the more and more restrictions on it. Well, he came into power suggesting he would do something about this, but he retreated on that. It's known as 18C, and he, he, he decided that for the kind of reasons we hear from other politicians, he wasn't going to change that law. So in both those cases, that the, the controversies he's generated are not controversies of a right-wing kind. They're controversies, um, in the first case, of less of a, essentially a moderate social democratic kind of approach to family uh, policy and welfare, and in the second case to a, um, he's a disappointed libertarian or conservative supporters of untrammeled free speech. So I, I don't think Matthew had, that, had it right. Mm. Uh, and as for the one policy in which one could say is a strongly conservative one, namely his stopping the boats bringing illegal immigrants to Australia, that is indisputably a popular policy almost across the board and one which the Labour Party has more or less now been forced to promise it won't um, repeal. And scrapping the carbon tax as well. Well, that's a very good example because the carbon tax is arguably a conservative policy, that's right. And it's one which Malcolm Turnbull would have been in the past on the opposite side. But it's popular, but the repeal of the tax, the opposition tax, is popular um, with most Australians. Uh, and the Labour Party is actually in a slight bind because it's committed to it. So um, th- this is a wedge issue, which, is, which in effect is to the benefit of the right and disadvantages to the left. And it's one which, if you became Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull would more or less have to go along with a policy which he previously 
had opposed. Mm. And a final question to you, um, John, because you look at uh, uh, conservative politics across the, the world with a keen interest. One of the things that I thought was interesting about the Tony Abbott premiership was really he undertook a sper- an experiment, which was to fix the roof while the sun was shining, to use an expression that George Osborne used. You know, George Osborne said Gordon Brown uh, never fixed the roof when the sun was shining, didn't use the good years to mend the public finances. Um, Australia's had over two decades of uninterrupted economic growth. The public finances are beginning to deteriorate, but their budget overall debt position is much better than most of Europe. What Queensland uh, state government did and, you know, just been ousted in a landslide defeat, um, what Tony Abbott has tried to do is he's tried to introduce austerity measures, perhaps when the country wasn't on the edge of crisis. And that seems to be what has got him into into trouble. Do you think we're moving to a period now, British opinion polls suggest that lots of voters are ready for more spending, Canada might be about to elect uh, a Liberal government rather than a Conservative government. Do you think the rights moment in the sun, which has lasted for a good half decade now, might be beginning to end? Um, no, I don't. Um, I can see exactly the, the reason why you asked that question, and there is no doubt that the, the, the economics is the real underlying basis of the unpopularity of the Liberal government here and of Tony Abbott personally. The fact is that Australians had, as you say, two decades of easy times. The terms of trade were in their favour. There was a raw material boom internationally, and they benefited enormously from it. So people could spend, 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 and governments could spend on the voters, which they did, and they liked it. But they've left behind, as you said, a a situation in which the public finances are overextended and the raw material boom has come to an end and now there's going to have to be, have to be, whatever government is in, some retrenchment. And and it may well be the case that deciding to retrench before the public felt the urgent need for it uh, is politically uh, risky and has hurt the government. But what's also hurt the government is that even those people on the right who saw the need for retrenchment, will, some of them believe that the actual policies of that budget, for example, attacking the benefits going to young unemployed people, were um, reducing them, were, um, were, were a mistake. Yeah. And throughout the Western world, we're going to see, I think, a situation in which governments, whether they're conservative or not, but particularly if they're conservatives, who are suspected always of wanting to cut, they're going to be going to the voters and saying, we need to cut, you have to cut, and, and the voters are going to require a lot of convincing. Mm. But the fact is, in, in the world today, you've come out of a, we've come out of a long recession, but we haven't yet entered the period, particularly in Europe, with the, with the ongoing euro crisis, we haven't entered the period in which governments can relax and say, well, we'll sit back, the revenue is going to roll in, the economic growth is there, we don't have to worry. And I think that the, 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 although in England the, the government is suggesting that's the case, I think that our economies are all too fragile. The, actually, the Australian economy is not as fragile as the British economy and others. It's, a, it's still a strong economy, but it has got problems. And as the raw material boom continues to gradually de-escalate, it's going to have bigger problems. And that's not going to make the, uh, the, 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 the position of either Tony Howard or if he's replaced uh, um, Tony Malcolm Abbott. Turnbull any easier.
John, well, thank you very much. Um, it's a five degrees here in London. What's the weather like in Sydney to make us feel jealous? Well, the weather's very nice in this room because they, we've got nice air conditioning. But <laughs> I'm going out afterwards now that the cool evening, the, the cooler the evening, to sit out and have a nice relaxed dinner overlooking Sydney Harbour. So um, I'll be thinking of you <laughs> in, in a muffler uh, and fur gloves and all that. I'll have a good time. Eat lots of roast beef, old boy. <laughs> well, John, thank you very much. And I will we'll put a link to Quadrant Magazine on the uh, Times Comment Central blog. So that's all for an extended edition of the podcast, making up for our absence last week. Do go to thetimes.co.uk slash comment central to subscribe to this podcast via iTunes, and that way you'll never miss an edition. But all it leaves me to do is to thank Anne, Roger, Roland and John for joining me today, to Dave McGuire, my producer, and most of all, to you for listening. Until next week, goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. Want truly hydrated skin? Meet Osea's Body Care Breakthrough Hyaluronic Body Serum. It's clinically proven to increase hydration by 161%. It's lightweight, fast-absorbing, and delivers 24 hours of hydration for silky smooth skin without any sticky afterfeel. Treat your skin to clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order with code SUMMER at OseaMalibu.com. That's O-S-E-A Malibu.com code SUMMER.